You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Good morning and welcome to Saturday Morning Live. It is the 7th of January 2023 and you're joined by myself, Shazal Lone, uh, my co-presenters in the studio today, Hamza Vanderman and Zishan Mirza. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Good morning, Shazal. How are we doing today? Very well, thanks. How are you? All is okay. Um, barring the uh, the lovely weather we've got outside in our modern studios today, uh, it is typical uh, English January weather, um, and there's a lot going on in the UK at the moment, and that's something that we'll be touching on. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, the recent strikes that have happened um, across industries here in the UK. Uh, they've had a, quite a major knock-on effect, so that's something that we'll be discussing, uh, as well as our usual stories, our news roundup and our sports section. Um, but in uh, in terms of the show, we are a live um, show and we would welcome you to come and give us your opinions. If you feel the need to uh, voice an opinion, a thought, disagree or agree, feel free to call us. Uh, our number is 0208-687-7878. That's 0208-687-7878. You can also contact us at our Twitter handle at Voice of Islam UK, all one word, or via the website, which is www.voiceofislam.co.uk. Um, kicking off the show today with our news roundup. Uh, Hamza, what do we have up first? Who's opening the bang? <laughs> if you pick up today's newspapers, there's only uh, one story in town. It's on the front page of uh, every single paper today. I think it was on the front page of every paper yesterday as well. And these are extracts um, from uh, Prince Harry's uh, upcoming book, which hilariously he um, had a meticulously well-planned uh, launch plan, mm. uh, which was all scuppered by um, a r- retailer in Spain um, misunderstanding <laughs> the uh, publication date and beginning sales early, oh. and so lots of people got their hand have got their hands on the full book, right? Uh, and that's why lots of uh, lots of bits are now just coming out every day. Um, all based on the Spanish Spanish book right. selling too early. Um, Hamza, you work in PR. Uh, is that a convenient slip that they've done there? Uh, uh, no, 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 absolutely not. I think okay. uh, I think this would be a genuine mistake because his PR team would have been planning um, planning meticulously, as I say, how to launch this. They mm. gave, I think, an exclusive extracts to the Guardian to start off with. Okay. The Guardian being probably the most supportive. Uh, Harry and Meghan um, newspaper in the UK so they would have written that up nicely he then had the interviews planned today on ITV and CNN I think in the US Um, ITV here in the UK that's being broadcast tonight Uh, and that would have been a staggered way to do it and then drop the book and then there would have been more stuff coming out of the book which would have been um, built some good momentum for him Mm. instead it's just all coming out uh, on a day-to-day basis all in publications that aren't particularly positive uh, on him uh, over the last few years. And they've really gone for him uh, today in all of the UK national papers, particularly picking up on this comment around um, 
Uh, I'm not sure. I haven't. I I haven't read the full extract, and I think without the full context of the chapter, you, you don't know what he's trying to say. But it's mm. been characterised as a boast uh, of how many um, Taliban uh, people he was able to kill while uh, during mm. his time in military. He's saying um, twenty five. He killed twenty five people. It's being characterised as a boast. Yeah. Um, and you know the military in particular seem are, are very upset about this you know it's not something that is normally spoken about it's not something that you know normal individuals would talk about you know um, people uh, with military family you know find it very difficult to ever get any information out of um, mm. uh, family or friends who have been on tour in any regard not about this just in terms of anything that's happened out there it's normally kept very private um, for obvious reasons and so uh, Harry deciding to um you know open all on that is mm. is causing some real real pain you know he's been accused by um you know very senior very senior people in the military colonel tim collins of betraying the mi- the military family um causing you know security risks for both himself and other ex military in the process uh and so you know it's uh, it's not a good uh, not a good set of front pages for him there are lots of other stories about uh, that are that are also mentioned. They're also big. He has admitted he thinks to uh, have been uh, have been bigoted in the mm. past, um, and uh, we all we all know publicly that there was the incidents of him wearing the Nazi uniform at a party yeah. a few years ago. Also, of calling um, one of his friends in the military uh, a South Asian slur. Mm. Um, Again, in the context, the individual apparently didn't mind, but you know, it's not. You know, we all know it's not acceptable. And so he's think, gone. Do we think that the the way he's coming out and just you know being very open about his I wouldn't say his frailties, but you know his 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 problems and and you know the the wrong words that he's used over time. He's admitting his mistakes. He's being very open, very human about things. Um, do we think that is a good thing or do we think it's just, you know, sensationalism? That's a, that's a good question. I think, you know, uh, from I watched the documentary, right? I think I spoke about this last time on the show. And on the documentary, I think one perspective which stood out to me was um, how the royal family and the communications teams who work for each member of the royal family kind of control the narrative. And they're kind of they have this symbi- like symbiotic relationship with the press um, and that's kind of what's controlled the narrative around the royal family yeah. since Harry was young, right? Mm. So one thing, Harry, which is probably one of the few things I empathized with was when Harry kind of came out and said, well, this is kind of my first shot at kind of changing that narrative and confronting it and tackling it. And yeah. then when you contextualize that with the way the media has treated his mother and now subsequently his wife, mm. um, I think I understood that. You know, I I think I understood why he would go to such extreme lengths yeah. with such huge kind of shock value behind the things he's doing to kind of combat the momentum against him in the press. Thoughts, Hamza? Um, <clears throat> I well, um, I think the stuff that's being reported that's in that's being um, uh, taken from the book over the last couple of days is. You know, I don't know why he's saying that. I think it's crazy. I think it's crazy stuff he's saying. Mm. Um, very personal stuff. And I think if you do want to go down that route, there are far better ways and far less, as you said, sensationalistic mm. ways to do it. It really does. I could be wrong. Really does feel to me like he needs book sales. Right. And you know, these are these are. You know, he's been told. You know, almost you got to make this 
really, really sensationally juicy, mm. interesting to drive those sales because also you need income because he's been cut off income from the royal family. Mm. He needs income, and it you know look it might it may be unfair, but it strikes me that because some of this stuff that's being reported just. You know, it doesn't it doesn't strike me as particularly thoughtful. I wasn't reading it and thinking, oh, what a, what a thoughtful guy. He's really thought about mm. this and he's tested himself and he's challenged himself. It just struck me as him just making some quite outlandish comments. Yeah, some of it quite child, some of it quite childish. The 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 section that I read on his fight with um, uh, um, with Prince William, uh, I th- I thought was actually just quite a childish section into you know a disagreement that he had with his brother yeah and i didn't think it really added much and it was clear that he just wanted you know he thought people would be interested in that and they probably are and um yeah and and therefore uh you know i i, I wasn't sure yeah um it's, it's it's interesting because i think when harry was um when harry was giving the the the, the interviews in the in the documentary like i i struggled to to really empathize with him as well i was like look ultimately you know you've had a very kind of privileged upbringing you know you've made a decision for yourself your family aren't quite happy with it and now you're kind of spilling the beans Mm. to to kind of you know level the the playing field a bit it almost seems like you're throwing your toys out the pram um but it's it's so tricky to tell what's going on with the royal family there's so many commentators (laughs) um and you know, I think, again, you know, I'm sure the press will uh, sensationalize what's written in the book. I, I, I can't say I will read that book. <laughs> and like to kind of reinforce what you're saying about how juicy it is, you know, like about Harry putting in, you know, nuggets that he thinks will sell. I think, you know, what reinforces that and to kind of show you how far the reach actually goes for this book. Um, I think the Taliban leader, one of the Taliban mm. leaders hit back at Harry, you know, and he, that you know he keeps up with his, his <laughs> UK pop news. So, um, you know, I thought it, it's um, it's a really interesting kind of surreal thing going on in the UK press at the moment. I think that's right. And look, and at a broader level, I think it's just uh, it's just quite sad to read about you know a family. And if you take a step back, is you know just a family and brothers uh, yeah. and the relationship between you know dad and dad and son, brothers and family you know really just falling apart um when that had been you know really really strong at at various times and i think you know looking at it from that way you do think gosh you know if you had a chance at reconciling or recovering you know doing stuff in public like this probably isn't the best way and you know it does show you know when you do have disagreements within within a family uh, and you know relationships, uh, you know ebb and flow. Yep. You know, it's really it's really important that you you know you understand when they're not when they're maybe not as good that you don't escalate it even even further Absolutely. because it just makes you know reconciliation even more difficult. And so I think from a personal point of view and kind of looking at it, I you know in, the, in terms of family dynamics and the strength of family and closeness of family, importance of family, it does make me quite sad reading it. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, something I've learned culturally is that I think, you know, when you first get married or there's a, there's a new member of the family, um, you know, in order for somebody to be a member of the family, you have to go through like a a bit of an ironing out process, right? Where you're learning the person's personality. Mm-hmm. You're going to fall out with different people. Different political issues will arise. Really deep, contentious things you never thought you'd have to deal with. 
And these are the things that you kind of go through when mm-hmm. two families are connecting, right? Like it's a very natural, normal thing to go through. Um, and then the question becomes, you know, um, how private should that remain, right? Because it's quite a um, an innocent and primitive thing that occurs in, in a relationship, right? The, the, the connection of two families. And so for Harry and Meghan to kind of, you know, turn that into a media frenzy. Now, I'm not saying that there wasn't a media frenzy there before. Um, and the press have been extremely harsh on Harry and Meghan. But for them to kind of reveal all of the family politics through mm-hmm. book, through documentary, and turn it into a source of entertainment. Yeah. Now, like, for example, it's not something you and I would probably discuss, Hamza, right? Like on a weekend, right? Like we would probably discuss politics, economics, you know, the, th- the general things that interest us. But it's become such a prominent central topic to the UK. It's now hard to avoid. Um, and everybody seems to be involved and everyone seems to have an opinion. I think that's right. I think that's right. Look, it involves the institution of the monarchy. It's been yeah. going on, you know, forever in the UK. It's the highest uh, institution in the UK, and these are these are critical individuals uh, that could determine yeah. whether, you know, um, the institution continues. And so, I think in, in that respect, it is it is quite important because if public favour falls out, you know, and and uh, drastically, and the institution does dissolve, that's a huge that would be a huge thing. And I think these types of uh, incidents, these types of changes probably increase the likelihood of that happening um, sooner rather than later. Whether that means ten years or whether that means fifty years, I don't know. But it yeah. probably does bring the time frames in a little bit. But let's move on onto into UK onto UK politics. It was quite a big week again. Two big speeches: first from uh, Rishi Sunak, and then secondly uh, from Keir Starmer. A couple of days later. Rishi Sunak uh, did his speech. This was his, his attempt uh, after um, the polls over the last few months since he took office have been pretty horrible for the for the Tories and him personally. This was his attempt at a reset and to try and for him to try and uh, set out his stall uh, pre-election, which you know could be in the next eighteen months, but set out his stall and what he wants to try and achieve and his direction for the UK. And so he set out five ambitions, five pledges, uh, as he called them. Uh, The first to half inflation, uh, to tackle the cost of living crisis. The second to grow the economy and create opportunities for employment. Three, to get the national debt falling so that um, that investment can um, can go into public services and they can be secured. Fourth, uh, to tackle the NHS waiting list, which we've all read about uh, over the last few weeks and months is really uh, escalating and really going really high. Um, and lastly, to pass new laws to stop small boats uh, coming into the UK with illegal immigrants. Yeah. So those are his five pledges. He thinks um, there was lots of commentary around whether they were actually pledges, whether they are actually targets, whether they're so obvious um, that they could be literally anybody's pledges and anybody's targets. Um, but that's what he set out um, as his priorities, as his ambitions. And then, uh, Zeeshan, why don't you go through what Keir Starmer followed up with a, a, a day or so later, I think. Yep. Um, I'm so sorry, Hamza. I think we're having some technical difficulties. Um, I don't think anyone can hear the show. Um, I'm getting some messages from callers, and I don't think they can hear us properly. Well, uh, let's let the uh, let's let the technical team uh, yep. t- uh, try and tackle that, and we'll and let's keep going. Cool. All right. Yep. So, um, yep. So, Keir obviously has um, set out. You know, um, to to contextualise that, I think um, 
Keir feels and Labour feel in general that they have a very good chance at the next election. Now, obviously, this is precluded by the fact that Rishi Sunak um, wasn't elected. Um, he has been doing relatively well with the Conservative base. Um, but I think Keir feels that the polls and well, the, the polls are showing that uh, Labour are leading. And Keir also feels that um, uh, Rishi probably won't be able to kind of um, maintain that base that he's um, kind of been able to build up so far. Now, in the New Year speech, I think uh, one thing that a lot of people who are big fans of Jeremy Corbyn or Momentum, um, etc. felt let down by was um, how Keir's maybe been a bit on the fence when it comes to the unions. Um, if anything, hostile. Um, Labour obviously historically has a very close relationship with the unions. Um, and so I think coming up to the next election, you know, he's making some big promises around the economy, around the NHS. Um, but it will really come down to whether he can kind of sew up the divide in the Labour Party um, between the kind of um, the leftists and the kind of centre leftists. So actually, the one uh, the big criticism that the um, that the people on the left, the Momentum, Jim, Jeremy Corbyn um, supporters uh, and others uh, often level at Keir Starmer and his supporters uh, is that he says one thing um, while running, i.e. before he was Labour leader, when he was running to be Labour leader, he made a lot of uh, pledges both on, I think, on taxes, on investment, on unions. And after he was elected, he basically, over the course of a year, 18 months, as you turned on almost all of them, um, and so they don't trust what he says, and and they argue that he's now going to do the same with the electorate, which is make promises, statements, pledges, uh, in order to get elected into office, which he'll then uh, U-turn on and change. What what would you what would you say to that? I mean, I I think that Rishi's, you know, Rishi's had to make some very difficult decisions in a very difficult environment. I think it's, it, you know, it's very easy to criticize him and say, you know, you did this, you did that. Now, he, he made a bunch of decisions under COVID. And I think some of those get pulled out of context sometimes. And uh, outside of Rishi Sunak, is there anyone who could, you know, run the economy as well as him or, you know, who has that kind of experience? I don't know in the Conservative Party. So there might be criticism against him and, and, you know, some of the promises he makes and whether he can actually accomplish anything. But, I, you know, I don't know if, if there's anyone who can actually achieve more than Rishi. Yeah, I think um, it was an interesting week. I think, uh, you know, Rishi Sunak is obviously the guy who has to do something to change uh, current perceptions, current polling, current views. Um, and he's just in a really difficult position because, as we all know, tricky uh, economic position really difficult position on the on the nhs lack of funds to invest into uh, into public services across the board and a really really difficult in, uh, industrial relations uh, across the piece coming up so how do you when you're already trailing in the polls and you've got this pretty horrible uh, environment um, that you're working in how do you change things and so this was his attempt at doing that setting out these these five areas where he's going to focus and I'm not sure if he was you know bold enough or or um, exciting enough for people to say well he's going to actually do something I think the day before the speech the big thing that was trailed was that he wants to make maths uh, compulsory for individuals yeah. until they're 18 which you know okay um, 
uh, I mean, I don't, there must be for pros and pros and cons to that policy. But if yeah. that is your big policy yeah. that's being leaked, uh, not leaked, but trailed to the newspapers as look at my big idea, then I think then I think you're in pro- and then you're in trouble. And then conversely, you know, for Keir Starmer, I thought his speech was just really, really safe because, yeah. you know, there wasn't really much in it because he almost feels he doesn't need to. You know, he's in he's in the lead. People don't want anything crazy. They just want some competence, I think, uh, and ready for a change. And so his speech was really safe. I don't think there was really much in it. And it's kind of his to lose at the moment. Do we think that Keir Starmer has, has caused uh, a, a break or, uh, you know, a, a caused himself an issue by not? Um, asking Labour MPs to join the picket line. Um, I That's mean, I was, Labour's root cause, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, like La- Labour's history is with the unions. And, mm. you know, I think I, I was just talking about this with Hamza as well. Like, so, you know, Rishi knows that he has to appeal to the Conservative base. We, seeing, sure. we see him doing it all the time, right? Yep. And um, I don't want to deviate, but I'll give an example of that, which is uh, Rishi, for example, the other day was talking about Pakistani grooming gangs. Mm-hmm. Right now, this was a really prominent topic amongst like Tommy Robinson and the Brexit lot, you know, when they were all coming up. True. And so, you know, he knows that a large portion who would vote for UKIP or not vote Conservative but are right wing um, need to be reined in. Right. So he's he's playing to that. And, and that's what you can almost I mean, you don't have to respect the the values, but you you can almost give him respect for that because he knows how to rein in the base. Keir doesn't... Keir seems to be completely um, blind to that, right? He doesn't... He seems to be in denial that whether you agree with those views or not, they exist in your party. So how are you going to rein those in? What are you going to do to to kind of make sure that we win the next election? Right. And that's that's the thing that's all up in the air, Mm. where Keir's like ahead in the polls, he's winning over the centrists, and that could win an election. It might, it might, but... Yeah. It's not clear how he's going to win over the leftists. Yeah, I think mm. the I think the calculation that he's making <clears throat> is probably that uh, people understand that the the Labour Party are going to be more sympathetic to the unions generally. They accept that, um, but what they don't want to see, I think, what the average person doesn't want to see, is a party that's in lockstep with the unions and being. Mm bullied by the unions or influenced by the unions it should be the other way around and so i think the 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 idea the, uh, the idea that he would stop people going on the picket line is interesting and in that he's not encouraging people to not do it he actually wants to be more aggressive and say that you shouldn't do it that's interesting but i totally get where he's coming from in that you know the average person i think wants to probably see a bit more distance between the labor party and the unions and that they're not kind of in cahoots and especially in the current environment where there's so many issues being thrown up by the strikes across the board and we'll discuss um you know what's going on there and uh, the background to that and the uh <laughs> whether it's a good thing or a bad thing you know mm. the role of the unions we'll discuss that in the second part of the show but i think what he's trying to do is create a distance and everything in Keir Starmer's strategy at the moment, I think, is basically to show that the Labour Party has changed a little bit and it's uh, it can be seen as competent on these types of economic issues. And as long as they're seen as, you know, relatively safe in that regard, they'll they'll probably, in his view, win the election. Whereas if he was to go after, you know, and create more excitement amongst the left, it probably cause more consternation and in amongst the middle. And then yeah. I think, mm, you know, he thinks point. that would, um, 
you know, I think he thinks that would that would cause him issues. So I think he's playing a and will continue to play a very very safe game <laughs> over the next you know year or so until that election. Then look, if he doesn't if he doesn't win it with a big majority, then I think you know everyone will be calling, uh, everyone will be going crazy. But that, I think that's the strat that's the seems to be the strategy for now. Yeah, and like it it feels like he's won over the South. Right, like where there's money and there's middle class folk and centrists, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure about the north. That that's a complete toss up for me. I'm not. Yeah. It could go either way. Yeah. Um. So you know, it would have been nice. Like you know, we'll get into the union stuff, but you know, Keir. I think I agree with Hamza that Keir not encouraging folks to join the picket line, and you know, you could almost tell he he wanted to say no. But yeah. um, you know, I I think is is yeah safe and kind of rational approach. Fair play, fair play. Any other news uh, headlines that we've seen aside from that? Gentleman? It's probably worth going over to the to the US. I think uh, listeners would have probably seen lots of headlines um, coming out of there over the last few days, and so it's probably worth uh, mentioning to give a bit of context and a bit of understanding around what's going on there. And that is Kevin McCarthy, uh, the name that everyone would have been reading, has finally... Uh, at the 15th time of asking, being voted in uh, as the House uh, Speaker. This is basically unprecedented. Usually the House Speaker, the voting in of the House Speaker is seen as a uh, formality. Um, you know, the party with the with the majority in the House puts forward their Speaker and, the, and those people from that party fall in line and vote that individual through. Yeah. Um, but because of the, the turmoil, because of the state of the Republican Party, uh, that hasn't been the case this time. And Kevin McCarthy, after 15 times trying to uh, give concessions to the individuals who were not voting for him on the Republican side, um, finally made the big concession, which reduces his power significantly, which was that any single member can now call a vote to oust him, uh, which, you know, is is quite a bold uh, concession to make. And, mm. you know, at any moment, these... Uh, rebels who'd been stopping him from becoming speaker 20 or so of them could just put up a bill and try to oust him and and so his power is you know vastly vastly um uh, reduced as a result uh, i guess he would have thought the only other way to get this through would have been to try and get some democrats over mm. and i think in the long term that probably would have made his uh, job even even trickier yeah. and caused you know even greater uproar amongst maybe republicans that he did have on side and so at the end of the day, he was desperate to have this position. He made the concessions he could. And I think his views probably, now that he's in the job, do the best that he can and keep these people on side for as long as he can. Yep. Win them over as he goes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was I was just going to say, what's interesting as well is, I think, is the, the scale of um, political beliefs now in each of the parties, right? So I, you have... As you have Republicans who have more in common with some Democrats than they do Republicans in their own party. Mm. Um, and, you know, if you look at like Alexandra, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, and how she speaks so dimly about some of the Democrats, right? She criticizes them so deeply. And, you know, the Republicans are almost coming to blows. And so, you know, you're, you're beginning to see actually the, the polarization of, of US politics and how wide the the political um kind of arena has become um just with those two parties it's interesting isn't it if you when you have a two-party system and you only have space for two parties Mm. there's naturally going to be a big of variance isn't there because you always have people with all views and then if you just draw a line down the middle you've got to have 
two parties that cover that wide extreme whereas in the uk you would have six seven eight parties um all filling a certain segment of that really broad spectrum um and 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 what happens in the uk as a result is what all the progressive parties are split up into smaller segments the kind of right and the center right traditionally have all just been part of the conservative party and it's enabled them to win majority after majority for the last you know 200 years or so um and so it's interesting you know when you do have a two-party system you have this huge these huge spectrums and where where do you where do they decide to sit whose party they in and how they reconcile those differences Whereas in the UK, you don't need to. You just set up another party yep. and your five mates who all think the same thing can be part of that one party. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, and I guess in the UK, we had like Chukura Muna and uh, a few conservatives. Yeah. And during Brexit, do you remember they broke yeah, away? They broke away, yeah. Yeah. And um, it ended their political careers, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know how much capacity there is for like creating new parties. Yeah, but I guess I think, um, you know, you talked about the party system. I think in the US there's a lot going on. I think Biden generally has been underwhelming as a president so far. Um, But at the same time, it seems that the release of, you know, tax um, reports of of Donald Trump recently or, you know, um, that I don't know if that's made him unelectable or not, because nothing surprises you now with American um, uh, politics in particular. No, and I think, you know, um, presidential tax returns is, was such a massive thing in the past, right? Like when Obama, um, when Obama was being asked to release his his tax returns, it was always on the kind of um, like assumption that okay, well, whatever it shows, we're gonna have to react to that, and it's gonna have a massive implication for whether this person should be the president of our country, right? Um, does that but, matter anymore? But it doesn't. It doesn't yeah. seem to have happened with Trump, right? Like he's paid a million bucks over five years, I think, yeah. or maybe two. Um, and you know, he's he's still coming out, and he's like, you know, I'm really good at taxes, <laughs> <laughs> like you know. So, um, so yeah, it's it's quite disappointing to see, to be honest. What do you think, Amza? No, I think look, I think that I think that's right. You know, the, I think in America, the whole political game changed over the last what 10 years has been mm. totally, like just totally changed and um you know people are so f- less trusting of what they read and and how it's reported by the media and um you know you gotta you know there's there's such an affinity for um various types of personalities and just you know, it happens in the uk a little bit and they call it um the politics of vibes and so you know Rishi Sunak was a Brexiteer, but he doesn't have the vibe of a Brexiteer, and mm. so the Brexiteers don't like him. They think he's a investment bank, London investment banker, metropolitan, and they don't think, even though he is a Brexiteer and his, polit- his policies are actually, you know, in line with, Bre- they don't see him as that, and therefore it's very difficult to win for him to appeal to them. Liz Truss was almost the opposite. She was a Remainer, mm. her policies were Remain, but she had the vibe of a, of, a, of a Brexiteer and therefore they fell in line. And, you know, so that's what's basically really happening is now yeah. is people who think they can relate to someone and they look at someone and think, oh yeah, he looks, he or she looks a bit like me or, you know, sounds a bit like me, similar backgrounds to me. I, they're probably on probably on my side of the page. Yeah. Mm. Um, and um, that's, you know, it seems to be that's how people are making their decisions these days or their perceptions rather than necessarily on the reality. Yeah. And look, watching people like Suella Braverman, like I totally believe that, right? Like it's, mm. you know, it's their perception of their party. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know whether people play to the play to the party or the audience or you know what they need um, to stay in power or you know on them within their position. Well, I think generally speaking, um, I think um, the moral code that we vote by now has changed so much, um, and that's you can say that across the board in the sense that I think you know when we talked about Obama and tax reports, I think we held people to a higher standard at that stage. You know, they they you want your leaders or leaders to have been you know good moral. Uh, you know, almost whiter than white to a large degree. But I yeah. think now people are like, if you serve my interests, I will vote for you, whether you are a checkered character or not, if you serve my purpose. And yeah. I think that's what feels has changed. Yeah, it's like whatever it takes kind of approach. Um, and that's very much how I start. Like when I was at university, I was like, okay, in politics, you should always try and take the higher ground, right? And mm. then it quickly dwindled into, okay, well taking the higher ground isn't going to get me anywhere so i'm just yep. going to join them right like let's just yeah. get stuck in and let, let, let's all just you know like we'll just fight the other side like mm. that's that's the only way and since the insurrection in capitol hill uh you know i th- i think that was the beginning of the deterioration of kind of republican style politics um right. which is really disappointing because americans deserve a republican party if if that if that's if that party reflects a belief in the country then they mm. deserve a good party um, but Trump seems to have completely destabilized yeah. that yeah, he and hijacked the movement. Yeah, right, and exactly hijacked the movement, mm. and it's just about him. Um, and so I don't know if, even if some Republicans realize the damage there. But yeah, I think you saw it in the UK as well. No, the, with um, you know, to your point around uh, morality, ethics, and and stuff, and with Boris Johnson in the UK, it yeah. was you know put all this stuff to one side. Okay, he lies on these five things, and he's always yeah. lying. On, but he does believe in this one thing, mm. and I believe in this one thing, and so I'll put aside all the kind of very Absolutely. clear and factual lies that he's told on these mm. other things because he believes in this one thing, and I want this one thing done. Yeah, and you're right. Once you've been through a, I think a Trump presidency or a, <clears throat> you know, Boris Johnson uh, prime ministership. Mm. I think then it does re-benchmark where you're at and it re-benchmarks your expectations and what you're looking for and what you think works and what doesn't. And you're absolutely right, Charles. You probably don't look at things in the in the same way or have the same expectations that maybe you did before. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, because we'll talk about uh, strikes and, and government funding of, of various, um, you know, sort of sectors uh, within the uh, UK, which is obviously we'll touch on NHS and um, you know, as well as rail unions, etc. But I think, uh, you know, if you look at back at Boris Johnson's premiership as well, and we talk about the PPE scandal, which has come up recently, where, you know, uh, contracts were given via, you know, MPs who were you know, handsomely kicked back. And you wonder, where is that money, which, all right, we were in an unprecedented time, but it seems like, you know, favours for the boys or the girls, so to speak, a lot of those funds went away where they could have been used now. Yeah. You know? And I think, you know, um, so it's interesting because for the first time, I would say the the Tories were always kind of a boys club handing each other, you know, favours, etc. Yeah. But I think one half of the Tory party were genuinely infuriated by the COVID fraud. Um, mm. So I do believe the government are suing various entities that have defrauded the government over COVID. Right. So we might see some recourse over that. Mm. Um, so it might. And I was one of those. Um I called the government out. You know, I was I was saying to my friends, like, look, you know, classic, typical Tories just doing what they're, mm-hmm. you know, talk. but if, if they manage to go back and sue and, and rectify, then I'll have some respect for that. I think, you know, if because um, 
corruption and fraud occurs all the time in supply chains sure. in governments right absolutely um, the world and, over no one's white yeah than white, exactly right? so yeah. um and it's happened before in this country um so yeah. if they do actually end up suing these entities that would be the first time i've seen a government actually come forward and say you know what we we did do it and we're mm. trying to fix it so yeah i can't that, that's still up in the air as well um yeah Fine. So I think that concludes our news roundup today. Um, so, yeah. So I think uh, in terms of our main topic, uh, Z, if you could just frame what's been happening uh, in the UK uh, in regards to the strikes, which have really sort of, um, you know, debilitated London over the festive period and into the new year. So yeah. What's what's the, uh, the scene from that? So we saw the beginning of the strikes, I think, earlier in the year. Um, we saw we were introduced to people like Mick Lynch um, and, you know, Royal Mail, um, airlines, um, uh, transport. So, uh, you know, most, most of kind of national rail. Um, and I think, um, motorways as well. I actually, uh, traveled up North and, uh, I Googled it that morning and the entire M25 traffic enforcement, like staff were all on strike as well. Mm. Um, like, so road traffic, etc. Um, I'm not sure what the implications of that are. I'm sure they're massive. Yeah. Um, so border border police border security yeah border security right um and so um you know we've been building up to this moment and the strikes that we've gone through so far seem to kind of have got us nowhere and we're now at a stage where everybody's kind of pulling out the big guns right so um the the three or four kind of prominent strike uh, uh trade unions in the country are leading um various strike actions um there's talks of a general strike which is absolutely nuts i don't know if any of you got like i don't think um any of us would be alive to have witnessed one um but basically a general strike would be coordinated at a national level um and i think one of the biggest trade unions at the moment is looking legally it's researching uh, with lawyers how to currently do that so it wants to coordinate uh, potentially a coordinate a national strike across several services um, and it's it's probably um, the reason why we've seen legislation now come out as well, right? So the government have criticized the unions throughout the strikes, um, which have been intermittent. The unions have now stepped up the strikes and the government have had enough. They think that, the, you know, the unions are holding the public ransom um, and they're legislating against it. So, you know, they're saying that essential services... Uh, some essential services it might be against the law if you work for for one of those essential services for you to strike Um, and we're now at a crossroads where um, we need to discuss workers rights yeah it's interesting isn't it the legislation that's coming out is about uh, minimum um, service requirements in the in in emergency sectors or sectors where there should be a uh, a minimum level so that's for example you know all nurses shouldn't be able to go on strike at the same time right. there should be a minimum level i think the same with something like the uh, um motorway enforcement you know you yeah. need a minimum level um otherwise it's state otherwise it's dangerous for the public and they want and the government wants to enforce whether they'll be able to get that through or not i was reading that there'll probably be some legal issues legal challenges and um problems getting it voted through the lords as well but it's interesting because um what i hadn't quite understood was that that or, or what i hadn't uh, acknowledged was that that is le- that legislation is in place uh i think in most countries in europe already so i think most countries in europe who you would probably consider probably to be more 
historically union uh, friendly uh, and more you know generally um, supportive of uh, of the union movement already have this um, already have this uh, legislation in place so I don't think necessarily you know in principle it's a it's a bad thing um, obviously it has to you know be uh, framed correctly but the kind of I guess the um, immediate or principled uh, argument against it to me doesn't quite make sense yeah and uh, sorry I was and, just going to say yeah. do we think there's an element of greed here I mean it's not like I mean I'll take out the um, the NHS from this and we'll, we'll discuss that separately um, but if you talk about um, transport workers rail workers uh, I read that the average wage 10 years ago was 45,000 they're currently around 66,000 they want a 10% pay increase they're being offered an 8% pay increase yeah um, split as 4% retrospectively over the last year then 4% for the next year yeah why is it that you know they 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 can demand a 10% pay rise you know and you talked about a general strike because what's the knock on effect i mean is it is this the way we're going to function because my my in, in saying that greed one is it's not like you're on the the breadline so to speak 45,000 to 66,000 yeah, 10 years. yeah you so, can't tell me you can't make household work with 66,000 as gross annual income yeah that's it's it's a great argument and you know i, I understand that but here's the thing right so the, the the rail workers have managed to unionize yeah. and negotiate their wages according to inflation because they were able to organize. Yeah. Right. No other industry has been able to do that to the same effect. Okay. So what you're saying is that um, a bunch of people managed to organize themselves and negotiate things according to their benchmarks, their thresholds, their industry. Right. Right. And because we can't do that. Hmm. Right, I would love a trade union in finance. Right, no, like, <laughs> good luck with that. Yeah, exactly. Right, no, but that's what I'm saying is, no other industry's been able to do it. So it, it's envy. Mm-hmm. For me, it's envy driving it. Like, right. why can you guys negotiate up to sixty-six k? Well, because we can. We right. we've gone through the liberties of fighting with the government, mm-hmm. setting up a union, getting all of our rail workers to pay four pound a month mm-hmm. or whatever, turn up to these you know meetings once a month, etc. This is all extracurricular stuff, sure. right? And so if your industry isn't doing it, that's your fault. Mm-hmm. It's not the rail workers' fault for organizing and tagging their pay to inflation, which is mathematically correct. Fine. <laughs> I, that point I get, and, and, I, and I'll give... Yes, it's very well explained as well. But I think that the point is, like, over this Christ, you know, festive period, shall we say, you can't get into London. Hotels were in a worse state than they were when COVID, the variant, was announced the year before. There's no, um, you know, furlough. There's yeah. no support for any of these uh, hotels. And I'm not talking about the big hotel chains. I'm talking about the waiters, the people who will turn up to work and weren't able to do that and would have probably lost their jobs because, you know, you've got people who are doing, you know, waiter roles and bartenders and whatever it might be. And, and they can't get to work. And what will happen? They'll be replaced by someone who can get there locally, perhaps, and not on a train. Yeah. So, you know, are do rail workers have to think a little bit more holistically that look we have got eight percent in the pack you know or just run some kind of service i mean it's pretty pretty bad yeah no i agree and, and don't get me wrong obviously what they're doing to the public isn't right either mm-hmm. um but i i just don't see how it goes any other way like and, mm-hmm. and the thing is when you as a train driver you don't turn up to work and think right i'm responsible for the public today like you just think i'm gonna go and drive my train and then come home right mm-hmm. like 
And so, it, and if I don't drive my train and get paid what I want to drive my train, then I'm not going to. You don't think, oh, you know, 50,000 people aren't going to be able to get to onto the central line or whatever, yeah. right? Like, so it's not really their responsibility, right? Like, it's in your interest to negotiate your pay. Um, and then the only people who are there to represent the public are the government, right? So, so, <laughs> so we're in a state where the government has got a lack of funding. Tax is, uh, you know, tax revenue is down yeah. because the economy is in the slump. Yeah. Uh, we're in inflation, so you're having to raise interest rates, so people's mortgages are going higher, etc. So the cost of living is getting worse. Energy crisis on top of that, and you're trying to make sure that you keep that in check. How do you do that? How do you function? You know, because is austerity required? It, it seems like it to me. Yeah, I mean, look, okay, so let's take unions out of the picture, right? If, if let's say um, you want to be a rail worker or a doctor or a nurse without a union, yep. okay. Now, what's happening is in this country, for example, we we nationalise those things, yes. and so it's it's just kept the pay quite low, right? And so now yeah. you've got this trend occurring where like doctors are going to uni and going six seven years in, and they're mm. like, actually, I don't want to go and earn thirty yeah. forty k. I, like it's not worth it for yes. me, right? But th- the alternative is privatisation, right? Sure. So it's America. So yeah. it's, you know, okay, you know, even talking about essential services, mm. you know, Rishi Sunak wants a minimum number of people to be working. But in America, they don't have like anything like that, right? Like an ambulance only turns up if you can afford to pay for the ambulance. Is that not true? Yeah, no, I, th- I think, look, obviously within the US, I'm sure they have um, a minimal level of, of um, you know, health provisions for people below the, the, the poverty line. Yeah, like a yeah, charity. I'm sure there is. Yeah. Um, but I mean, do we want to become that type of a society? I mean, the UK was it prided itself on you know the NHS and its national services. Are we becoming cynical and just thinking about individual um, you know benefits as opposed to so, you know, holistic ones? And and that's it for me. It's it's either or, right? Like it's it's either you kind of have to bow to unions and work with them, mm. or you have to head towards privatization. Well, I mean, there's got to be, <clears throat> there has to be a ground where, you know, um, I mean, as you said, Z, if, uh, you know, if workers organize, um, it's basically their only power in the system, isn't it, is to withhold their labor. They can't do and they can't, you can't do anything else. Yeah. And so withholding your, your labor is, is your power in the, in the system. And I guess the interesting point comes where, um, where, you know, there's nothing to stop a union from basically consistently asking for unreasonable things. Um, and so if you take it to the extreme, you know, a union could just come in and start um, um, demanding 30% pay rises and striking if not. And where does that get you? That doesn't really get you anywhere because I think then what happens is, is indiv- the the, the, um, the companies don't work and individuals uh, lose their jobs and they all lose their jobs and the unions are then blamed for mm. you know um, train companies no longer being able to function and existing and that yep. isn't in anyone's interest yep. and so the unions do have a tricky balance to manage here which is you know they have to ensure that what they're demanding still um creates the economics for a successful and sustainable let's say railway company now they think that that's possible at uh, nine at 10 percent pay rises whereas the government and the rail operators don't 
that's the that's where you have the the fundamental shift so you know mm-hmm. the unions would want a 20 percent pay rise but the union bosses know that 20 percent means that the actual railway wouldn't be operate wouldn't be operable yeah. wouldn't be sustainable and therefore they don't they think it is sustainable at 10 percent uh and the operators and the government don't think that now who's right well that's where you have the negotiation um and that's where it gets tricky because at the end of the day if the government wants to pull away and the union is seen to have messed this up then its members will also be angry because its members don't you know will not be paid uh and then therefore they'll be angry they'll lose their jobs and the unions will come under huge pressure so it's not like it's just um it's not uh, striking isn't kind of a, a or at least it hasn't traditionally been seen as the easy option uh, because there are ramifications that could go quite wrong for the industry afterwards and i think that's where the unions have to have got to be have got to be really really careful because if they lose public mm. support uh, and yeah. they lose some of these negotiations yeah. and they aren't seen to be willing or able to modernize some of their services uh, or the way that they are able to operate then i think uh, people will really start to question uh really start to question the value and the and the um uh, the value of the, of the union itself and then you'll get even tougher government legislation that people will probably be supportive of in terms of curtailing their powers and ability mm. and abilities to strike yep i mean yeah and you know i i think the country has a rich history of trade unions right and i think it's just it's worth paying attention to when like you know nurses haven't negotiated their pay yeah like you know they've been underpaid you know they've never been rightly paid since i was a kid yeah so and you know i i definitely think the rail workers are probably asking for too much in some instances um but i think the the right to negotiate and the aggressiveness and that kind of leverage over the government etc is necessary um agree and disagree in, in, in the sense that i Come back to your point that, yeah, look, they've gone through the hard yards of getting that position and getting things locked in contractually. And now they want, you know, the dues paid accordingly for their members. And, I, and that part I get. Um, but what I find uh, a little bit difficult, especially when it comes to transport, I guess, because it's the veins of the country. Yeah. You know, uh, and I think the knock on it effect it has, it's not just the rail union is str- is, will strike and then that's it. You know, it's just their members who are affected you're having a massive knock-on effect to other people. And I think that's where it does become a little bit muddied. I'm not saying it's a black and white argument. It's not by any stretch of the imagination. But um, but I think that it does cause, you know, further issues. And I think that's why we do become a little bit more... Self-interest seems to play a bigger part um, as opposed to, you know, we talk about, you know, uh, Islam and, and its its want for society as a whole to be provided for, especially with those below the poverty line yeah but um I th- yeah. yeah i just don't want us to become fractious i guess yeah no and, and i agree and i think you know historically unions were very political mm. um but i think over the years they've become less so um and i think if you if you if any of you ever get a chance to join a union um and, and work with one or if any, uh, one ever has to help you god forbid mm. um you know, it's an incredible service that they provide. So have, if you, you, have you had experience? Yeah, yeah. So that? I've had experience working okay. with trade unions. Um, right. My dad has had experience working with trade unions. He's okay. actually had to use a trade union representative before. Okay. Um, you know, and, you know, when, if you're going through hardship at work mm. or if you are uh, in any kind of contentious issue, whether it be over pay mm-hmm. or whether it be a personal HR issue, yeah. Um, 
you know they they tend to you like you know right. my, my dad described his trade union representative as an angel right right because he came in you know essentially resolved his issues at work which as you're all aware that if you have an issue at work it can seriously alter your brain chemistry mm-hmm. right like so um and you know he used to turn up i think three or four times a week and he was at right. our house okay. you know right writing for days you know listening to my dad um going back working with lawyers you know the level of work involved from these people and i think my dad was paying what seven pounds a month right um and this guy was working for us like you know he was our general counsel for the month right um so you know i i think it's important to remember that whilst unions do have kind of political figureheads who are out there kind of fighting on behalf of of their members Mm. and that trade unions are actually just a bunch of regular people so it's it's all of us who are the trade union um with just maybe three or four people who we've kind of um you know decided our subscription should you know support to a a certain degree Mm. um but that's it right like there is no political organization behind behind trade unions like unison is just made up of 50,000 administrative workers across different industries. Right, right, right. Um, you know, uh, sorry, not just administrative, it'll be others as well. But, mm. and, and, and I feel like that gets lost as well in the media. They always talk about unions as if they're yeah, some they're money grabbing. kind of legal political yeah. entity. And it's yeah. like, I don't think that's quite the case. That's interesting to get that yeah perspective of that uh, in particular, especially with the you know, experiences, because, yeah, unless you're, you know, working in a specific sector, it's, it's rare to, to use trade unions, but I guess, yeah, yeah. you know, in certain uh, areas, that is, that's interesting perspective to give. Um, but what we'll do is we'll go for a uh, short news break. Uh, upon our return, we'll focus a little bit more um, about the knock-on effects of strikes, the potential uh, for further strikes to come, uh, and what repercussions and perhaps solutions potentially we could look at. So please just uh, join us after the break. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Good morning and welcome back to Saturday Morning Live. It's the 7th of January, and you're joined by myself, Shaz Alone, and my co-presenters in the studio, Hamza Vanderman and Zishan Mirza. Um, we've been uh, discussing uh, about the strikes that are happening here in the UK. Um, and again, we are a live show, so if you want to voice an opinion on anything you've heard uh, or want to share with us, feel free. You can call us on 0208 687 That's 0208 687 Or you can contact us at our Twitter handle at Voice of Islam UK, all one word, or via the website, which is www.voiceofislam.co.uk. Um, we've been discussing the socialist element of trade unions um and z you had uh done a little bit of research um on the topic and um what uh, the fourth um khalifa of the amadi community had said uh in regards to socialism uh do you want to share that with us yeah absolutely so um hazrat mirza masur ahmed um in 2013 um said there are scientists who discover new and better ways to find and extract such resources and develop machinery or devices to facilitate the positive utilization of natural resources. Mm -hmm. Certainly, for making such efforts, they are entitled to some form of remuneration. Similarly, there are engineers who, having attained advanced qualifications, enter different specialties and work towards developing these resources, so they too are entitled to benefit. Further, there are experts from various other fields who are entitled to their due shares. Sorry, their due shares. Mm. However, it must also be made categorically clear that no person or group has the right to deny a normal employee or labourer 
the due share for their efforts, right? So that's speaking specifically to labor mm. wage. Yeah. And then uh, Hazur goes on to say, according to the prevalent circumstances of the time, it is the job of the governments to provide such workers with appropriate salaries and the best possible working conditions mm. so that the gap between the rich and poor can be reduced as much as possible. Mm. To, provide such uh, to provide such facilities and employment rights is also the responsibility of the rich companies or organizations that employ such workers. Okay, and mm. I, I, I think that's really pertinent. There's another one as well, but I just want to give an example of that. Yeah. So, um, my wife, uh, my wife is a prison officer. Right. Okay. Uh, she works very uh, adverse hours, um, and she relies on the train. Right. Like mm -hmm. she has to be able to get the train half six in the morning sharp. You know, if it doesn't go, then you know it can have a massive implication on the prison because if there's not enough prison officers. Right. Um, you know, it can, it can cause really, really big problems, which raises issues around danger and safety, etc. Mm -hmm. Now, um, so the government are negotiating with the rail companies what the pay should be. The strikes are going on and therefore this prison is now short of prison staff. So what's the solution to that? Right. So mm. um, the prison are paying for taxis for all of their prison staff every day, back and forth. Right. Right. And it's turning out to be one hell of an expensive affair. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, she's probably really happy, though. Yeah, she's loving it. She's loving <laughs> it. She's getting she's waking up later and she doesn't have to run for her trains. Um, and so she's she's much happier. But I think what I want to kind of point out is mm. that you have this ballooning cost. Right. And is does the government consider the ballooning cost of temporary solutions whilst mm. they negotiate these wages, which, you know, I mean, I'm not sure about the maths, but it feels like the money that's kind of going on all these temporary solutions while the rail companies are on strike can go towards making yeah. rail workers a bit happier. I don't know, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess the issue for the government is if they are seen to buckle, let's say, yeah. um, to the demands of the railway workers in this instance, who's then next? then who's next? Yeah, and then mm. you kind of set your precedent as being, um, uh, you know, an easy easy um, negotiation, yeah. and you're gonna you're gonna start <coughs> falling for for every union that's coming up. But I I totally take your point. It's it's a really difficult one because you know you can reducing costs somewhere or being hard somewhere may just result in extra costs in another part of the state and I think that's where the problem is at the moment there's a perfect storm isn't there where it's not just yeah. one sector that needs uh, that, or that is uh, requesting negotiating for pay rises basically all public services all at the same time and that's why you have the perfect storm where as you mentioned earlier Z, there's you know, potential for a general strike because there's so many different areas of society that yep. all feel with 10% inflation that they're struggling and they haven't had pay rises over the last decade and yep. they feel that now, you know, it's just, it's all become too much and now the negotiations uh, are, are taking place. And so really this is probably, um, you know, the result of mismanagement over, you know, a long, over a long period of time. Mm. Um where now things have come to a head and when things come to a head it's always much more difficult to resolve everything at the same time whereas if you'd kind of picked these off over the last 10 years and had 
you know some success in various sectors you'd probably be able to manage this more but that's yeah, never been kind of in the in the um conservative parties won't i guess yeah um but that's the that's the that's the i guess to explain to listeners that's the trouble now is why you know there's always been strikes previously let's say over the last 20 years always been you know strikes going on why are there so many happening right now across all uh, aspects of public sector life and it's really because of that the cost of living crisis um, is affecting everybody inflation is up across the board yep. and you haven't had pay rises in all these tricky in all these sectors over the last decade and now it's become too much and all the negotiations mm. that should have been happening periodically yes. over the last 10 years are all happening boom at the same time and that causes the problem and mm. that's what you I think talk about isn't it is they say what is the definition of everybody right because um, I think Mick was talking about Mick Lynch was talking about this and he was saying a nurse doesn't have her lunch subsidized mm. at an NHS hospital and the lunch that she gets will be like macaroni and cheese or mm. like burgers right yeah MPs can pay four pounds and receive close to a Michelin star meal yeah right so who's representing the MP's lunch menu mm. and how are they able to get it subsidised and who's representing the nurses yeah. and the unions are saying somehow that gap and that representation needs to be like it needs to be equitable like there needs to be fair, fairness in there mm. um, and and that's where a lot of the frustration and so I feel like so much of um, I, I, I think you're absolutely right Hamza that it's a negotiation at the end of the day and you have to use negotiation tactics. You can't just give in, you know, that you can't set, you have to set precedence, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But I feel like the media is um, kind of redirecting the narrative a bit um, because there are valid questions about pay in public services. Mm. Um, are the unions going the right way about it, you know, by holding us in a chokehold? Probably no. But... This is the first time the entire country is suddenly beginning to understand what pay negotiation entails, right? Like, um, because it now has a direct effect on us. Um, and I guess it's a kind of natural inclination for me to be like, ah, my train's not running today. Like, screw, you know, I hate the person who, who caused this. Mm. Um, and I get that. I get that. But for me, that's just a natural thing. I think the worrying thing is also you talked about narrative and media and you talk about like the NHS. So, you know, people talk about nurses going on strike. And I think generally people do have a little bit more sympathy for the medical services uh, that we have in this country. Um, you know, I experienced that firsthand over the festive period uh, when my mother was taken in uh, to hospital due to COVID. Um, and one, there's lack of beds. Um, you know, it took, you know, not not just one night of being able to get a bed, but when that bed is provided, it's within one of the A&E bays. And I was thankful she wasn't, you know, in one of the hallways on a stretcher. Yeah. Because that's what I saw when I'd walk in every day. You would see one A&E completely packed to the rafters, not a seat to be found. Um, and then when you go through the hallways, you'll see people just laying on stretchers. Um, and that's where the concerning thing is, and obviously I spoke to the nurses, and, and you, you're empathetic to a point, but... You know, there's a frustration because, you know, you see one of your loved ones sitting on a chair for a whole night when they're suffering from breathing difficulties. It's like, no, hang on. They need to be at least laying down, yep. you know, in, a, in at least resting because how are you going to get them better and how are you going to get them out of it? 
So you have to kick and scream a little bit, but I sympathize when you look at the nurses and what have you and, and the hours they're working and, you know, the shift patterns and those types of things. And you wonder, you know, one, if the pay is not right, the food isn't right. You know, these people make a mistake. They make a slip. It can be life or death. And yep. you talked about, you know, people in the medical, you know, education going through seven years saying this isn't for me there are doctors who have probably been in the industry for many many years and now walking away saying it's not worth my while to be a doctor anymore exactly and then and then so philosophically mm. how do you pay nurses what they're meant to be paid mm. whilst not raising taxes right yeah. like it's impossible right you, you have to make these kind of moral decisions and so for me um it it's about whether um you know we can right yeah no i think i think that's an important yep. point um and then um mm. um actually mirza Dair Ahmed in uh, 1992 the fourth successor of the yep. the Ahmadi muslim community um actually said in scientific socialism an attempt is made to level off the economic soil so completely and perfectly that there are no ups and downs left if watered such soil will get its share equally. There is no question of any demand from the have-nots, nor any threat to have, to the have-alls from the less fortunate sections of society to forcibly rob them of their surplus wealth. In the capitalist society, they talk more of equal opportunities, level playing fields, and free economies than of equal distribution of wealth. Thus, there is always room for the demand of rights and the creation of pressure groups such as trade unions, etc., Mm-hmm. which seek the most out of the government or other capitalists for the sake of the employee and the labourer who always live under a sense of deprivation. If scientific socialism is implemented ideally, there is no need left for any sec- section of society to make demands. Either that society would be rich enough to equitably distribute national wealth according to the needs, or it would be so poor as to have failed to fulfil their needs, leaving every member of the society sharing his or her misery equally either way it would end up as a society where demand no longer has a meaningful role to play the capitalist system on the other hand is demand orientated the fortunate section of society must be given the right to express its dissatisfaction and a free opportunity to be heard hence the need for the formation of pressure groups and strikes industrial strifes lockouts etc Islam attempts to create an attitude whereby the governments and the wealthy are constantly reminded that it is in their own ultimate interest to establish an equitable economic system. I think that's an important point, um, and not only just um, what His Holiness uh, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed said, the, the fourth uh, successor of the Promised Messiah of the Age, um, is that, that guidance that he's given. Um, but, you know, I think we talked about over the last few shows uh, when we've been here, uh, we've been talking about, you know, how Islam affects our lives, uh, you know, and it has a real world um, living and breathing effect on us. Um, and even the Holy Quran, um, you know, people do often talk about books, you know, being, you know, perhaps dated and what have you. But um, when, when we were researching the topic, um, you know, one of the verses in the Holy Quran mentions, you know, how extreme poverty should be taken care of. And that's something that, that we still face, you know, even today. Um, and it says here that uh, in, in regards to uh, one of the verses where it talks about a poor man lying in the dust. Uh, it's one of the verses in the Holy Quran. Uh, the Arabic expression of lying in the dust is in this verse implies the kind of extreme poverty that reduces one to near non-existence. 
Persistent destitution can deprive one even of the ability and energy to raise a voice. There are beggars who go from door to door seeking relief. Some of them beg insistently and refuse to take no for an answer. Others raise hue and cry in protest and organize themselves to press the government and the rich to help them. However, God expects us to have sympathy and love that we must seek out the helpless poor who do not even have the capacity to protest and beg at someone's door. Such a member is not a member of a trade union of beggars. His lips remain sealed even though his stomach may be empty. He remains hidden away in sickness and grief. He is friendless with no hope or energy left. Islam expects the rich to reach out to such hopeless poor and strive to heal their bruised hearts. Islam expects the rich to achieve such heights of moral advancement after doing everything in their power in the service of the poor, they do not regard themselves as superior for being charitable. Instead, Islam expects the rich to remain humble before God and constantly prod their hearts to ascertain if they have truly fulfilled their duty towards the poor. The rich must not remind the poor of their help, nor should they consider it as a favour to the recipient. Rather, they should be engaged fully in self-examination if they have fulfilled their God-given obligations. Yep. And, you know, I, I feel like there's so much truth to that. You know, I think growing up in in the kind of uk amadea community like we never had mm. a understanding of who was rich you know it, it, who who was super rich like were there super rich players in our community like we never we just didn't know anything like that yeah and you know everyone was a silent partner you know and that's how it's always been and like that that couldn't be more true you know so it's a great great quote and i think what's so interesting about those quotes as well is that you um, that it speaks about you know creating an equitable society and if you create an equitable society then um, you know the the, the needs uh, for organizations like trade unions mm. wouldn't be required and so almost what you see now is okay why are there more strikes being called why are trade unions being more aggressive and it you know one could easily argue that it's because society has become uh, or allowed to become uh, more in it, more inequitable, uh, mm. and therefore the needs for these organisations, sadly, is increasing. And you know, if the governments, uh, not just in the UK but worldwide, you know, were to try to close those gaps, those are probably the societies where you see less need for trade unions because society is more equitable because the demands of late of workers are being heard on a regular basis and there is more cooperation whereas you know if that is to if that continues in the uk and if we continue to see the widening of inequality in society more generally then what will the result of that be well probably more trade union action probably more strikes and probably more in some ways hardships for people mm. um so it really does come to come down to you know the trade unions being a uh, almost a result of what's going on in your society and if society mm. is more equal then you know the tra then the way that a trade union acts and the, the nature and role of it plays will be very different to yeah. what we find now in a growing unequal society then the role of the trade union is always going to be as such yeah I think yeah. Yeah, Sorry, I, mean, I was going to say I think look uh, overall, you know, the, the shows we've discussed it today. There's been, there's obviously a need, um, you know, for trade unions to be there uh, to help these people. There's obviously a big challenge in the broader society economically. There are a lot of hardship out there. It's tough for people. You know, uh, it's heartbreaking to read. You know, some of especially when you see elderly members who are choosing between eating and and heat. Yeah. You know, those sort of things are you know they hurt the soul, and I think. We as um, as a community, as a global community, and, and we're talking specifically in the UK today. So even if we take that apart on, on board, are we even, even though I think empathy exists 
Empathy is a, a very, very strong word. And I think we're more aware of things in ourselves nowadays more than ever before. But because of the circumstances, have we become selfish? Do we look at ourselves and just take care of what's in our hands immediately in front of us? And have we stopped thinking more about broader society? And then the easy way to turn around is to say, oh, well, the government doesn't do its job. Yeah. But well, I, I mean, the thing is, we struggle to do things in coordination, right? Like, so mm. the trade unions are representing parts of society, right? Like, and, you know, we we can't coordinate. You know, like, for example, when an MP came out and said, can you all stop asking for pay rises because it's affecting inflation? It's like, well, how are we supposed to coordinate that, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. if, if I, I mean, okay, I'll do that. I'll go to work and I'll say, listen, don't worry about the extra money. I want to I preserve the economy. Yeah. That has zero impact, right? Absolutely. Right. We need like the 30 Shazel, million. Shazel's out there <laughs> trying to get his, uh, get his pay up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we need 30 million people to do that, right? Right. And and so, you know, that that level of coordination just isn't there but you say that level of coordination but the, the point to your argument also is the fact is if you don't go for a for a, a pay rise or none of us go and ask for pay rises that money is going to go to the shareholder or the beneficiary of that company Precisely. it's not going to get redistributed anywhere Precisely. Is it? and and that's my next point which is we need a long-term solution mm. i'm not saying you know holding the country ransom via the train com- like via the trains is the sure. right way but I think legislating against a trade union is an extremely dangerous place to be headed. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, ultimately, there. I, I think I'm happy to debate it, but I, I genuinely struggle to see what a trade union represents other than employee and human rights, right? Like, sure. so what is the reason to combat that? Mm. Um, and I, I don't see the government's actions in good faith, if I'm honest. Yeah, that part, that point, I do agree with. I do agree with your point, and 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 it it comes back to what Hamza was saying as well. If things are functioning well, trade unions aren't so high on the radar. But that doesn't mean at the same time their rights should be curtailed to speak as and when mm-hmm. required. Yeah, um, and and you know, and don't get me wrong, I I don't think they should have the political weight um, that they did in the past. You know, when uh, with Blair and and previous Labour governments. Mm. Um, but I think to to start saying that. You know, one particular job has more rights than another one, which is effectively what they'll be saying mm. um, if they if they go ahead with this legislation uh, is, is a slippery slope. Yeah. Now, I think we have to, uh, broadly speaking again, I think we have to remain empathetic and aware of what our responsibilities are as a society. And I think that's something we 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 all need to look at. But like you said, how do you coordinate something like that is the most difficult part in all of this. Yeah. Never yeah. easy, never easy. But um, um, aside from that, I think what we'll do is we'll take a short break now um, and then we'll return with our sports section. Uh, a lot's been changing in the world of football in particular and some societal changes as well that we've seen from the recent move of uh, Cristiano Ronaldo to Saudi Arabia. So we'll, we'll discuss some, some interesting social points that uh, have come from that as well as the footballing side, which obviously raises some passions. Please join us after the break. Life of Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Treatment of neighbours. Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, always treated his neighbours with extreme kindness and consideration. He used to say that the angel Gabriel had emphasised consideration towards one's neighbours so often that he sometimes began to think that a neighbour would perhaps be included among the prescribed heirs. Abu Dhar, peace be upon him, relates that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said to him, Abu Dhar, while broth is being cooked for your family, 
add a little more water to it, so that your neighbor might also share in it. This does not mean that the neighbor should not be invited to share in other things, but as the Arabs were mostly a migratory people, and their favorite dish was broth, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, referred to this dish as a typical one, and taught that one should not think so much of the taste of the food as of the obligation to share it with one's neighbor. Abu Huraira, peace be upon him, relates, On one occasion the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, exclaimed, I call God to witness that he is not a believer. I call God to witness that he is not a believer. I call God to witness that he is not a believer. The companions inquired, Who is not a believer, O Messenger of Allah? And he replied, He whose neighbor is not secure against injury and ill treatment at his hands. On one occasion, when he was addressing women, he said, If anybody finds only the foot of a goat to cook, that person should share it with his or her neighbor. He asked people not to object to their neighbors driving pegs into their walls or putting them to any other use which occasioned no injury. Abu Huraira, peace be upon him, relates, The Prophet said, He who believes in God and in the day of judgment should occasion no inconvenience to his neighbor. He who believes in God and in the day of judgment should occasion no inconvenience to his guest. And he who believes in God and in the day of judgment should utter only words of virtue or should keep quiet. Muslim. <laughs> Welcome back to Saturday Morning Live. It's uh, the 7th of January 2023, uh, first show of the year. And uh, you join us in not-so-sunny London, um, but joined by myself, Shazalone, and my co-presenters, Hamza Vanderman and Zeeshan Mirza. Um, we've gone through a lot of what's been happening in the UK uh, in terms of the strikes, in particular with uh, the uh, railway and the NHS. And then we uh, also looked at, obviously, uh, the Islamic angle. Um, we discussed uh, what our guidances are and, uh, you know, the empathy, perhaps, that we should have um, you know, to approach this. Uh, and we hope for better solutions and outcomes uh, for the UK um, and the world as a whole from the economic issues we're having. Someone who doesn't have economic issues is Mr. Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, but do tell Indeed. us a little bit about the, the different sort of themes that are coming out uh, from the mega transfer or, you know, the new contract that he signed because there's no transfer fee as such. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll let you guys cover the kind of sporty side of things, but I thought sure. it was really, really interesting. You know, yeah. uh, Cristiano Ronaldo... Uh, going to Saudi Arabia uh, on an absurd amount of money. Um, he'll be moving into what can only be called a palace, um, which has essentially been gifted to him. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I don't want to deviate to Saudi Arabia's laws here, but I'm going to talk about it a little bit. So yeah. the uh, the country is accommodating Cristiano, you know, in a very unique way in the sense that there are some laws in Saudi Arabia, which you can imagine probably aren't, accommodating to your modern footballer mm -hmm. and so um you know one of the laws that they're changing for example is around um uh, cohabiting with um a partner or, mm -hmm. or you know you're supposed to be married in saudi arabia to be cohabiting with somebody mm -hmm. um and i think they're going to allow cristiano ronaldo to cohabit with his partner even though they're not married but to be clear they're not changing the law right z they're just they're just Sorry, allowing yeah. him to to break the law uh, yeah in, in I, essence. I, that's a very good question actually I, so i've read it very high level and in the article they did say that saudi arabia would be amending but i it, it's not clear it's not clear whether it's going to be an exception 
or the law is going to be kind of redone. So my yeah. understanding was that they are allowing him to be an exception, oh, which I thought okay, was sorry. totally outrageous. Yeah, <laughs> that, that is outrageous. <laughs> that is. How does that even work? Like, do you have a list somewhere of yeah. the exceptions? I think literally, yeah, I think that is. Oh, wow. Is. That it's is crazy. insane. Yeah. So and, and it really speaks to what Saudi Arabia is going through as a country, I think, yeah. which mm. um, and, um, you know, I, I, please take this with a pinch of salt. But, you know, Mohammed bin Salman um, obviously was uh, held responsible for the murder of Khashoggi. Now, yes. if we cut that out of the picture, mm. I think the progression and development that Saudi Arabia has gone through is an absolute marvel. Like he, he has transformed the country into something I wouldn't have expected 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, I think even uh, I think this week it was announced um, that when it comes to the pilgrimage of Hajj, uh, that women no longer need a uh, a male um, person to chaperone them. Abs- and, you know, for me, Saudi's done what Pakistan wasn't able to. Right. Mm-hmm. He's curtailed extremism in the country. Right. He right. diminished the rights of people who were pursuing extremist religious ideologies. Mm. Um, he's modernized, you know, the 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 spectrum for, for men and women, you know, mm. to engage in, in politics and society. Um, and economically, he's trying to move them away from oil. Right. And, and this and this whole Ronaldo thing as well. For me, it was just, a, a, you know, a show to how modern and progressive the country is trying to be. And even this exception to the law thing, it's it's the most progressive thing I've heard. Like, I've never heard anything like it before. But is it progression for the sake of, you know, uh, you know, self-preservation? You talked about the moving away from oil. It's not because, you know, because oil will yeah. won't be fossil fuels, won't be the source of, of energy and, and uh, fuel that, that they will use. So diversification by that rationale is required he has to self-preservation yeah yeah absolutely um and they and i I think they were just so desperate to get ronaldo over there playing football and as a figurehead for the country's 2030 world cup campaign you know just they would they would literally do whatever he wanted Mm. and you know i think that is as you say well it's part of the tension i think of those conservative uh, values that they've got there, conser- like you know, conservative Islamic values that they have mm. there, versus wanting to diversify the economy, bring in Western investment, and sure. you know there's a there's a tension there, and they are trying to manage that, um, and there's going to be tricky bits along along the way, a bit like Qatar found by hosting yeah. the World Cup. Yeah, I mean, obviously there was a reaction to. Qatar getting the World Cup and and the you know I think it, it's quite rich that you know you know people throw stones at oh you know how did they get the World Cup in the first place like every other country got the World <laughs> Cup in the first place is by normally bribing everyone up the ladder at FIFA and then yeah. you know or you're buying your votes you know that happens so you know let's not just say that they're the first you know uh, nation that probably paid their way to get the World Cup but I think in terms of the way things were handled, the reaction that we've seen, obviously we're talking about Saudi, but you can see from the fallout from uh, from uh, Qatar or Qatar, as they call it, um, the BBC was ridiculed for the way they went about blanking the opening ceremony. Yep. You know, there, there was a real element that they just didn't want this 
the World Cup to be a success. And lo and behold, on the voting on the BBC website, Qatar was voted um, voted the most exciting World Cup or the best World Cups, yeah. you know, of the last twenty odd years. That's hilarious. And you know, and, and you know, the BBC is is so interesting. We have such a close relationship with the Middle East. Several countries in the Middle East, including Qatar, right? Like mm. they listed all of Qatar's investments. We sell weapons to the Saudis. You know, like. The list is endless. So it was a very bizarre thing for the BBC to take that position, in my view. Yeah, but it's really interesting, the, the thing with Ronaldo, because you know, from a sporting point of view, he was also in the interviews talking about, you know, trying to develop um, football, trying to change the image of football in the country, this type mm. of stuff. Um, so is it, and, it, and the amount of money is really interesting because they must really be going for the 2030 uh, yeah. World Cup. I mean, that, that can be really the only reason why they were so desperate to get him over mm. and then also from him personally it's amazing because you know only about a month ago he's probably saying he's you know he's never going there and he's always and you know he had yeah. his spokesperson Piers Morgan saying it's yeah. never going to happen <laughs> he wants to win another Champions League for another big club type thing <laughs> and you know um, he's definitely good enough to do it and this is where he ends up so I found that quite or, amusing as or well. the, yeah. there's an interesting Same. clause in the contract because you know Saudi are now owners of Newcastle oh yeah so if Newcastle qualify for the Champions League he will be allowed to go on loan to Newcastle <laughs> what so there is an element of there so he he may well still have a, a, a European swan song should Newcastle qualify for the Champions League and the, at the right now but you and, and, and just to be clear Newcastle the acquisition of Newcastle yeah. uh, was only allowed because the Premier League said there were no connections between yes. uh, between uh, the uh, sovereign state uh, wealth fund and the and the country itself, which yeah. is in vi- would be in violation of the Premier League's owners' rules. So yeah. it's just, I mean, that, that is crazy, is the craziest thing I've heard. Yeah, no, exactly. So I think, uh, like I said, I think people, you know, serve, you know, do serve their own self-interest. And obviously, the Premier League has done that in this regard. You know, because obviously, you lost Russian money that's gone yeah. out of your system now with Roma Abramovich and. You know, if you've got someone who's willing to pump in money into one of your major uh, clubs within the Premiership, which has probably one of the biggest fan bases in the country, then you can allow it. Exactly. And let's see who um, comes in for Man United and wants to invest in Liverpool. Also up for grabs at the moment. It's, you know, very, very likely that that's going to be a big consortium of Middle Eastern money. Yes. So, and I'm sure that will have, uh, well, to most people, very clear connections to the states uh, that they're from. Mm. Um, But the Premier League, I'd be very surprised if for, for all of a sudden they start to be doing proper due diligence on that director's test (laughs) yeah Yeah. i doubt it and so it's interesting for me as well because um you know ronaldo's kind of been hoisted off to uh, saudi and and messi won the world cup you know and there's been such a contrasting end to the two greatest figures in in football yeah in recent times Yeah. yeah absolutely i think it's been uh Look, people look back on it. It's a joy it. to watch. It's a joy. It's <laughs> yeah. been a joy to see it happen, really. It's really, all, really all pleasing. Fans rejoicing. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you get it and then you see all the GOAT comments and what have you and, you know, Twitter goes mad and uh, and what have you. But, I mean, look, I, I, personally speaking, yeah, in, in modern times, I, I applaud their longevity. Their statistics are amazing. You know, I don't think you can rival them, you know, especially on a statistical basis. But I think um, sport isn't just stats, um, and uh, and in in my um, you know years of watching football, 
uh, for me, um, as as brilliant as as Cristiano Ronaldo and and Lionel Messi have been, and the fact that Lionel Messi has won a World Cup, you know, for people say that's the crowning glory. He's now the greatest of all times. We've got to remember this is his fifth attempt at trying to win a World Cup, and I'm not talking the comparison between now Ronaldo and Messi. Yeah, uh, I think a lot of that has been put to bed in, in many senses, in the sense that because he's achieved internationally, whereas I think you know I think Messi should have achieved internationally much earlier than he has done. Mm. Uh, whereas you know I think perhaps you know Cristiano Ronaldo, I mean Portugal did have a number of Premiership players in their squads. Perhaps they should have done better, but. Negating that, I think the whole thing and and comparing him to Maradona, I saw Maradona play. Uh, I saw his effect at World Cups, at the club level that he played. Uh, I think there was a different dynamic and charisma as a footballer, not as a personality. I don't think either of them... Uh, I mean, Messi doesn't have much of personality off the pitch, to be frank. Uh, Ronaldo can be divisive. or And equally, you know, I've seen him a number of times when he comes out in support of Palestine. It's quite quite yeah. strong in what he he says so um but and i think obviously maradona was a very troubled figure you know i think the world of agents and and those things didn't exist in that time and that's why when he went to italy he was influenced by the mafia fell into drugs and and what have you i think the trappings of that lifestyle um you know they were tough but i think we hold footballers up to a high moral standard which perhaps we shouldn't do they're not moral examples they're not brought up that way yeah they're good at what they do and they have a specific skill set which is mainly physical right i agree yeah uh, and if i look at it just on that basis um i would say to you that when what you see messi do in fits and spurts in a game which is you know can be mesmerizing at times when he goes on a run and beats three or four people you know, that happens in pockets of the game. Yeah, you know? yeah, um, highlights. Um, and that happens, you know, at specific points, and that's what you're shown. Whereas Maradona would do that seven or eight times a game. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It, it was just what he did. Yeah, consistently. Yeah, I mean, you. But the th- I mean, I, say, I guess the difference was, is mo- but you, you could probably argue that um, Maradona's peak uh, mm. was higher than, let's say, Messi's peak five years ago, probably six, seven years ago, Messi's yeah. peak. Yeah, yeah. You know, but the longevity is kind yes. of is is I guess and it depends how much value you put on the longevity versus just the the um, the uh, the moment of highest peak if you see what I mean. Sure. Uh, but but just really enjoyable to see the Ronaldo argument. Just I mean, there's not even he's not even there anymore. It's probably fourth in my list. <laughs> it's great. It's so good to see. I don't know. I, I think I'm the same to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of people who, um, yeah, yeah, who've, who over the number of years have, have fought tooth and nail. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that, that argument. Really enjoyable to see bench. him drop from the Portugal team and then, then win whatever it was, 6 well, nil. That was really enjoyable. Yeah, I, really, I really enjoyed that as well. No, but to be honest. Sorry to our Ronaldo fans. Yeah, but well, the thing is, I'm not a Ronaldo fan, but I, I will say, just to play devil's advocate, Portugal only won one game against Switzerland and then they were knocked out of the tournament. So did they really make the right move? I don't know. You've got you've got your you've got your highest goal scorer of all time on your bench, and you've gone out of the World Cup. Not oh, sorry. I'm, I, yeah, I'm just um, I'm 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 not really looking at this objectively. I just really enjoyed the fact that the the game that he was lost, his replacement scored a hat trick, yeah. and uh, and Portugal looked the best they have done for about three years. So that was really good in one game. But that's yeah, one yeah. point, right? Yeah, yeah, in one game that he didn't in, they didn't play. We warned you again. <laughs> Anyway, I really enjoyed it. I'm sure people, some other, some other people didn't. Um, I, I've, but you know. I'm nondescript. I, I was more about. It was more for me about. I knew what was going to happen as soon as he won the World Cup. Messi, this Maradona, that. And I'm like, I, it, 
I, I, in my mind, there's no comparison. Honestly, having seen both, but I'm, and it's but, difficult to argue with people who have never seen both. No, but I'm very happy for that for that to be the for the for that to be the argument. Mm. Whereas before, yeah, no, you know, other people were trying to chuck in Ronaldo to three, and it's like, come on, let's so, behave. So obviously, after Messi won the World Cup, I'd talk to my uncles, um, you know, and, and they would they 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 swear by this, and they would say that Pele was the ultimate right. player, and I never saw Pele play, so I, I can't say because I never lived in that time I never turned on the TV to see what yeah. it was like what the game was like what you know what that period was like to live in and obviously you saw the demise of Pelé very sadly uh, last year and you saw the outpouring I mean three days uh, of national mourning in Brazil um, you know you, you could see the impact that someone like that had and he won three World Cups yeah. and he won his first at 17 at his first attempt and scored two goals in the final yeah. as opposed to Messi who at the twilight end of his career is and is at his fifth attempt won a World Cup. I mean, there's always arguments to be made about these sort of things. But the one thing I will say, and we talked about Messi, you know, you talked about longevity of his career and the peak of Maradona, which agree, again, I agree with what you're saying. You you do tip your hat to the longevity. You know, injuries, you know, that's luck of the draw. But in my mind, Maradona on these pitches without a back pass rule yeah. and without a tackle from behind and without a yellow card for basically GBH. I would have lasted longer. Not lasted. He would have survived. He would have strived in this time. Yeah. With Messi, even though it's probably a bit more diminutive than Maradona was, I don't think he would have survived in Maradona's era. Just, I think he would have got kicked out of the game. Uh, and same with have... someone like Pele. Yeah, Pele but... was strong, athletic. He was kicked out of the 66 World Cup. Yeah, and what I'm saying is I don't I, think those people survive. Yeah, but I mean, you kind of play the game that suits the time that you're playing, don't you? And I'm sure, you know, to, to, if Messi was playing 20 years ago, he'd, mm. I'm sure he would have played it a different way. Perhaps, maybe adaptability. But all, all I'm saying is I think it would have been tougher for him to survive in that environment the w- than for someone like Maradona I mean, the, to survive in this environment. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, but the way he, I mean, even within his own career, the way he's adapted his game. I mean, as you mm. say, he basically just looks for five moments a game in this World Cup and of those where he actually sure. put some effort in. Yeah. And of those five moments, three of them probably worked in each game. And that was the reason they, yeah. I mean, didn't do much in the final. Probably didn't have five moments in the final. But, um, you know, up until that point, he was basically carrying them. Mm. Yeah. So is is for somebody who doesn't follow as much. So is is now the argument is Messi the greatest footballer of all time? I think that's that's what a lot of people who I think it's a people, generational thing, no? I think it is a generational thing because people always want to say I saw the greatest of all time in my generation, right? Yeah. And whatever that may be in whatever sphere that is, you know, be it tennis, people will say Roger Federer, you know, there's always arguments to be Never made. Never saw Sampras. Yeah, yeah. I mean Sampras. Or, well, actually, you know. to be fair, in tennis, the beauty is they're all playing. At the, the the argument is they're all playing at the same time. And who, who you know, who yeah. do you prefer? Kind of Djokovic, uh, uh, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic. You know, all yeah. at the same time. That's why actually in tennis, it's an amazing conversation yeah. because yeah. they're all playing against each other all yeah. at the same time. I mean, look, there's people whose stadiums are named after in tennis, Rod yeah. Laver and what have you. And I've never seen them, and I couldn't yeah. tell you how they yeah. played or what their style was. But of this generation, yeah. But again, it comes back to that argument we talked about. If you talked about the three that are there, Rafael Nadal, uh, Djokovic and Federer, statistically, I think Djokovic is probably better yeah. and probably will outsell them. But in, in the long run, I don't think anyone would think of him as the greatest of all time. It would always be Federer, then Nadal, then Djokovic. I think that's where the So sad for him. So sad for him. Just the lack of beauty. 
Yeah, I think that's what it is. Sad. Maybe it is the aesthetic part yeah, of, of, course of it the is. support. Of yeah, the sport, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And, and, and to be fair, sports entertainment, you want to be entertained. You want to, And to be honest, that's part of the difference between uh, Messi and Ronaldo as well, isn't it? It's mm. just the joy in watching uh, Messi dribble past five people rather than just jump really high and score a header is... But this is it, right? So for me, right, before we go back there, right? No, I'm not going to justify that. I'm not that big of a Cristiano Ronaldo fan to, to argue that point. Like, you know, and if, because stats, okay, you yeah, know, Messi, Messi's, you know, undeniable. But when it comes to dribbling, okay, yeah, Messi is insanely good at dribbling. But for me, like, Ronaldinho, Brazilian Ronaldo. Yeah. Like, that, for, I, and I don't know if it's, um, romanticizing the past, mm-hmm. but in my head they always dribbled past more people <laughs> and yeah. scored better goals. Yeah. So I, you know, it, for me it feels generational. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I do agree with that. I think it's uh, yeah, it's at the time you live, but I think it's also the the state of the game has changed quite a bit as well. Whereas you know, growing up in the eighties, I think pressure on ball wasn't there. You know, and it was more down to your personal skill. You had more space to move in. Nowadays. The fact that you saw teams like Saudi Arabia beat Argentina in the World Cup, you saw so many upsets of smaller nations. What that points towards is fitness and organization because yeah. it's not so much on talent itself, but it takes you up to a certain place. And then it takes a moment of magic or technical ability, which which shows you the difference. So I think I think things have changed quite a bit in the game. Yeah. But uh, for me, yeah, I mean, that blend of the blend of speed, physicality and skill the game changed in my eyes when Brazilian Ronaldo played and that that's the player that I've always perhaps you say romanticised yeah that's the person I grew up thought yeah he's a brilliant player but I think the change in football at that time went from almost at times a walking paced game on skill to okay now the game's become really fast tactically teams are a lot of wear and this guy is breaking the mould yeah and I think you know that's when then you get players like Thierry Henry and the mould change you went from Alan Shearer who was, you know, a big stocky centre forward who could head the ball, mm. like we talked about, to people who could pick up the ball from the halfway line and, and beat five, six people. So, yeah. you know, I think evolution changes perspective as well. Still got Haaland doing doing it as a big centre forward. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, still, still, still a very good target man, but uh, but good with feet as well. So it's not not from that perspective. But I mean, yeah. I mean, if you look at um, you know Man City this year as well. I mean, obviously Premiership is back. Uh, Hamza, what's your thoughts on? Uh, Arsenal leading the league are they going to get that done that's interesting isn't it I mean they um, well it depends how well look it obviously depends on whether they can maintain this form and how much kind of whether they can play under the pressure of being the uh, of being the leader I mean what you know about Man City is they have the ability to go on a massive run at the end of the season when the pressure's on and question mark is whether Arsenal will be able to do that but Look, they're playing good football, and um, you know I hope they I hope they can you know push City to the end of the season. It'd be good to see them do that. Um, I think they're going to fall away drastically. <laughs> yeah, I, I think. I mean, I watched their documentary last year. This is pretty much the same team. Um, I think they've had a good run of momentum. I think it's benefited them. There's been a World Cup because it's like there's almost they're fresh again. Yeah, fresh again, and you go again. The fact that they've lost, um, you know, Gabriel Jesus, yeah. who I think is useless. But, um, you know, he was a good player for them and fitted into their system. They've done well. I think they've built on momentum. But I think they're one one defeat away from 
the house of cards really falling down i think that will happen yeah i mean i I, look i think that is the that's the concern that would be the worry i mean even after the they drew to um was in newcastle the other day yeah not bad result actually just fine right take a take a draw against another team that's playing very well at the moment yeah you know if man city drew against them probably wouldn't worry about it so you know nice point gain keep going whereas you know a lot of the chatter and you could see from their looks they, they almost thought they dropped two points and it was like I think that type of mindset where they get over over worried and you know think too much about slightly negative results. Yeah. Uh, when there's so much to play, you know, could be what could be what um, cost them. Other interesting thing the other day I saw uh, was watching it is, you know, and and I thought exactly the same was Jamie Carragher's reaction to seeing Man United in fourth, I think. Yeah. And you know, uh, not that far off. Maybe five points off City or something, six points off City, like not that. And I, yeah. I was when it came on the screen, I was stunned as well. And I think they broke to the panel, and he was like, "Sorry, can you put that back up? I can't believe it." <laughs> and so, the, to be fair to um, to them and Ten Hag, I mean, that is an amazing reversal. They seem to be playing very well at the moment as well. And I'm be, you know, surprised. I'm surprised to see mm. it, but it's um, you know, it's interesting considering you know all the chat around how bad they are, all the problems they've had with Ronaldo. Seems to be winning a lot of games now. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. It is. But I know. Look, he's, I think he's benefited from Marcus Rashford coming back. Yeah. Uh, you know, invigorated from the World Cup. He's done very well since he's got back in. Um, um, well, I think it's much of a much. I, I think it's man for the title. Man City. Yeah. Um, you know, if you look around the other teams, yeah, I mean, any of them can make it. I mean, Spurs could do it. Um, you know, Man United could do it. I mean, Chelsea. I think a bit, bit far off the pace now. I think Liverpool, unfortunately, will fall away now. Mm. I think Liverpool, with Van Dijk out for a month, they'll be under pressure. And the fact that they've, you know, this Darwin Nunes has yeah. become a bit of a, you know, um, a bit of a laughing stock. He's a joke figure, isn't he? It's amazing. He is, but it's unbelievable how Liverpool, like Carragher, for example, they're defending him. You know, he's just Chances, like he's yeah. a season away. Or even Klopp said it. He's like Lewandowski. Is he he's the guy like who keeps this. missing? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that. Domino's even did a did a. Uh, an ad saying that sorry if if we missed anything or we've had late deliveries because this bloke's missing all of them yeah yeah I watched his last game I think was it last week Uh, Uh, yes yeah yeah, the misses are interesting aren't they because they're not they're not close like one of them that he dragged off almost went for a throw in I mean it was like it's like wow yeah no I think I think some people are natural strikers and they they point to the fact that Luis Suarez who played for Liverpool and was a great striker uh, started off a little bit erratic I was like no this guy is not that level and you want him to be a success. And I think media has a big um, say on how someone is seen. Um, and I think they want to give this person chances. Whereas I think when Lukaku came back as a hit from Inter Milan and came back oh, yeah. to Chelsea and or from Man United, he was only a couple of games away from being you know, ridiculed. Whereas other players like Harry Kane can go on a 10-game spree of not scoring goals. And as score as he scored two goals the other day, it's like, did you expect anything else? I'm like, wow. <laughs> yeah. I'm a Lukaku fan. I like him. <laughs> I don't think he's as bad as he's portrayed. Yeah, I don't that think he is, is my either. Point. That is my point. And I think, I don't know whether media, you know, you know, allow certain people to get a free ride and other people's get, people get absolutely hammered. He got Lukaku got that tough break in the World Cup, didn't he? Where he came back from injury, yeah. got was in just thrown in for the last twenty and missed three sitters, and it yeah. was like, oh. it happens. But look, <laughs> oh. look, I mean, it's, it doesn't help the narrative, right? And anyone who's watched Premiership, oh yeah, he's that player again, right? Yeah. But then you know, you'll see the cliches come out. If, yeah. if for argument's sake, if that was Harry Kane coming back from injury, they'll say. 
you have to be in a position to miss them. It's better that you're there to miss them. You know, th- those are the sort of things that come out. And, you know, obviously when it comes to penalty misses now, you know, every, t- every time that man steps up to the spot, you know, you'll get the stat nine times out of ten, you know, he'll score. But, you know, that one out of ten was in the World Cup. Yeah. <laughs> so if um, I thought we could wrap the sport up by saying um, mm. rest in peace to Gianluca Vialli. That's how I kind of yeah. remembered Chelsea. Uh, was you know Zola, Dennis Wise, yes. Viali, yeah, um, yeah, very kind of golden era for for that club. Uh, yeah, for me, or yeah, that <laughs> was part of the phase where the that was he was part of the initial phase where the Premiership, uh, where the um, yeah. uh, lots of Italian players. international players exactly. started yeah. coming into the Premiership, wasn't he? he was part of Correct. that wave, uh, you know, where we where we had the joy of seeing all these international guys start to play. It was right mm. at the beginning. It was yeah. really, I, I agree. It was really amazing to watch, yeah, actually. Definitely. Yeah, I think one of the, I mean, Antonio Conte, who's a, a Premiership winner with Chelsea and now is Tottenham's manager, he said that Viali was the first Italian manager here and he opened the door, ah. you know, for Premiership uh, go, managers yeah. and what have you. So you can see even the, the gratitude and, and, and the, the, the uh, you know, the, the history that he created. Yeah, you know, you know coming here. Yeah, like I, I, I stopped tuning into football for a long time, and then I mm. saw his face, and it just brought back so many great memories of mm. uh, football. You know, so I think you know he's a yeah special person. So rest in peace. Yeah, no, no, absolutely good, good, good footballer. Won the Champions League with Juventus. Um, played for Sampdoria. Played for Chelsea as well. So yeah, very successful. Managed Watford as well, I think. And everyone just seemed to love him. Everywhere yeah. he went, fans loved mm. him, colleagues loved him. You know, you don't hear, you know, everyone speaks very, very highly of him as a as a person, mm. um, which, you know, you don't always, you know, obviously with big egos and big successful people in football, you don't always get. Yeah, very true. But, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously it's been uh, quite a you know sad period for football, losing you know, these sort of big figures. Pele probably being the largest. Uh, but, yeah, someone like Gianluca Viardi, I guess it goes to show you, like um, as I said, uh, a lot, of, a lot of your, uh, what people say about you after you're gone says a lot about the way you lived your life and the legacy you leave. So I think it's important uh, how you deal with people does have a bigger knock-on effect uh, later on and what they say about you. Absolutely, um, you know. So that'll be interesting um, to see. Uh, you know that he's holding that good respect. Um, but yeah, no, I think um, yeah, in terms of uh, football, I think we're at FA Cup weekend now. I think let's see what we've got to look forward to this year. Um, we'll see if Tyson Fury um, either fights AJ. I think that may happen at some point. Just yeah, as about we're hoping. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's, it's a bit of a. It's not. It's a non-competition for me. I think yeah. AJ is is way out of his level on that one. The Usyk Fury would be interesting to me as well. So yep. we'll see how that goes. Um, and England playing a brand of Test cricket which has never ever seen before. Hamza, you're a fan. Yeah, I mean, how, who can? Are you not a fan? Ah, oh, it's good to see. It's good to see. <laughs> Let's see what we've got. I think we've got a World Cup, ODI World Cup coming this year. That'll be interesting. But thanks to all of our listeners today uh, and my co-presenters for the show. We'll speak to you soon. Jazakallah.